Hello, and welcome to another season of the Envelope Podcast. We're back to bring you more engaging and revealing conversations with some of the creative talents behind your favorite shows and movies. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Yvonne, it's so good to be back with you. I'm really excited for some of the interviews we have coming up. Who did you talk to this week? Mark, it's so good to see you, too. I wish I could, like, just reach into the screen and give you a hug. (laughs) But it's June, and you know what that means. We're in the thick of Emmy season, and our next guest starred in one of TV's most delightful breakouts. I'm talking about James Marsden. He, of course, has, you know, an impressive and varied resume with roles in the X-Men franchise, Hairspray, Enchanted, Westworld, and Dead to Me. I could go on, but he has been getting some of the best reviews of his career for his role in the genre-bending sitcom Jury Duty. So, Mark, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but the series revolves around an unsuspecting man, Ronald Gladden, who thinks he signed up to be in a documentary about jury duty. He thinks it's all real, but it's actually fake. Everyone besides him is an actor, including James Marsden, who plays a satirical version of himself. It's an unusual role for him. This isn't, you know, the James Marsden that you, or specifically me, want to be singing Benny and the Jets with on a bar top. Shout out to 27 Dresses. This James is a bit of an egomaniac in the most hilarious ways. And it's been such a revelation to see this heightened side of him. Yeah, he really is such a, like, this reliable sort of utility actor. And so it's just great to see him get a moment to shine like this. And it's somehow even better that it's in part by making fun of himself and the stereotypes of a Hollywood actor sort of lost in the real world. Yeah, he had a lot to say about that. So let's get to the conversation. Thank you for joining me today. So your most recent show, Jury Duty, is part prank show, part mockumentary, work sitcom. It's been described as The Office meets The Truman Show. Take me back to the beginning. How was this show pitched to you? So the beginning was David Bernad, a producer friend of mine who produces The White Lotus. Uh, we did a couple of projects together. He called me and said, hey, I've got this interesting concept to pitch you, and I think you'd kind of be great for it. And it has to do with a lot of improvisational scenarios. And I was like, I love that kind of comedy. I love The Office. And he said, well, good. Well, let's get on a Zoom with Lee and Gene, Lee Eisenberg and Gene Sibnitsky. What we want to do is we want to do jury duty for three weeks, but with you playing a version of yourself, uh, sort of heightened, uh, self-involved <laughs> version of yourself. Uh, and all a lot of like, relatively unknown improv artist on purpose because there's going to be one guy who thinks the whole thing is real and it's actually fake. I didn't ask your name, forgive me. Ronald. Ronald. James. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint it because I was like, I've seen you somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. But I've been in like so much stuff. It's like X-Men and Hairspray and Enchanted and Westworld and stuff like that, but Notebook. Oh, shit, you're in Westworld? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Was it already set up at Freebie? Like, and did you have any sort of brand awareness for that? Yes, it was. And no, I didn't. I, I knew that early on they were saying this is going to be on Amazon's new platform. It's an ad based, you know, streaming mm-hmm. platform. I said, cool. I, I, you know, 
And in the way back in my head, not to, you know, I was just thinking, who's going to see this? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> not because of freebie. It was just like, what is this show? What I can't I can't think of a comp really. I mean, I guess, you know, Truman show, like you said, Truman show meets the office. Um, it's as if like the character of Jim in the office was a real person and he thought the whole thing was real. And I just thought, I want to make sure that we're taking care of this guy and I'll make an ass of myself and, and have fun doing it. But I never want him to be the butt of the joke. Were there any moments during filming where you thought it might teeter that way? Oh, several. Yeah, every day. Mm-hmm. No, every day there was a, a moment where you think, uh, one, is this a nice thing to do to somebody? <laughs> uh, and two, you know, is he going to find out? But once we got to know Ronald after day one or two, everyone started to slowly fall in love with the guy. And mm-hmm. um, and so it kept all of our, you know, it kept me in check. Like there were certain moments I was supposed to push harder on per the script. And I couldn't do it because it was... Uh, if, Does if one is, stand out? Well, yeah. The big one was the birthday party. You know, I'm supposed to go to this birthday party. Well, I don't I don't know it's a birthday party. I think it's a pity party for me. Yeah, yeah. Having lost this role, you know, because again, this James Marsden assumes that <laughs> the world revolves around him and every yeah. conversation is a should be about him. Uh so if there's a party, it's got to be about him. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's scripted that I show up thinking it's a pity party, and I trash the, the party right I, i'm supposed to flip the cake i'm supposed to pop every balloon and throw cake at people and just have a massive hollywood meltdown hissy fit and as soon as i flipped the cake i saw ronald kind of hang his head a bit and turn away and i just it just bothered me that it was bothering him and i just was like i gotta stop i can't continue the big important thing for me was that we sort of protected him by the end of it we're like singing his praises and celebrating his spirit and his humanity and and that's, I think we've managed to pull that off miraculously. Well, yeah, because I feel like Jury Duty would be a completely different show if Ronald wasn't such a, you know, genuinely kind and caring guy. And I think like that's the thing that I liked most about it. Like there's this real sense of hope uh, and affection and camaraderie that comes through amidst all the shenanigans. It it sort of makes you want to be more conscious about being kind and empathetic toward others out in the world. Well, I feel like we, you know, we were really smart about making sure that that was the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, throughout the process, it was, it always felt like, the feeling was, it's either going to be really funny and maybe skewing a little mean or not mean but like it's morally questionable (laughs) Mm -hmm. or it's really what they say it is and it's a hero's journey and we're going to hoist this guy on our shoulders at the end of it and celebrate him and and the comedy is going to suffer for Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. but somehow we managed to like walk and chew gum at the same time there (laughs) we we managed to kind of pull those off both of them and um and you're right. It would have been a different show if it wasn't Ronald. I mean, he's there without a script, right? So no one knew what he was going to do or say. And there were characters that were constructed to, on purpose, make him feel awkward or maybe a little uncomfortable or, you know, challenge his patience a little bit. And mm-hmm. he just embraced them with open arms. So we got lucky, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, Listen, I'm not going to... You know, there's a lot of unsung heroes in this process. I mean, the writers for the scripts, um, Nick Hatton, the boots on the ground producer, who was just making sure that everything, all the logistics, 
that were just crazy about what had to have happened, all the hidden cameras and the plotting and the choreography of where we're all supposed to be that I didn't have to worry that much about because I just got to get in the room and be a foolish, entitled celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a it was very well constructed and well crafted. But to a certain point, you kind of got to cross your fingers and hope that it comes together. Yeah. And he started to win over hearts uh, for all of us throughout the process. It was like, this guy is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. Ronald Gladden started out at the, as this regular guy from San Diego, and he's sort of become this breakout used to be a re- star. Yeah. yeah, he used to be a regular guy, right? <laughs> Do you feel any sense of protection over him that he doesn't sort of get swallowed up by the trappings of this sort of newfound notoriety? Yeah, I, I do. I feel a bit responsible as a friend. I, I feel like he didn't ask for all of this, so hopefully he's enjoying it. Um, mm-hmm. Two things. One, the most important thing was once the curtain is pulled back and we do the reveal for him at the end, I couldn't get to him fast enough and the rest of the cast and the producers as well to basically go give him a big hug and say, hey, listen, yes, this was a show. This mm-hmm. was all fake, um, but it's going to be hilarious. And you are going to be such a super like you're going to be people are just going to love you because you're you're mm-hmm. you're such a, a good human being. Um but it was it was all fake, but some of it wasn't. Like this friendship that we created is not fake. Like this is real. And I want mm-hmm. you in my life and and we should be friends. And all the rest of the cast echoed the same thing. And you know, because it would have felt bad if we would have been like, hey, that was a yeah. fun three weeks. <laughs> Peace out. And <laughs> yeah, see you, see you later. Uh so that was important to me. And then beyond that, that I was a presence for him after the fact, after he you know, packs up his bags and goes back to San Diego and like, what's life now? You know, like, so he would call me a couple of times. I called him just checking in on him. And, and then I was going to, I'm like, Hey, I want to, I want to be a real supportive presence for him throughout all of this as well. Cause the show mm-hmm. just is, I've never been a part of something that's been, that's exploded as quickly as this show has. And, and even I'm kind of like gobsmacked about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm staying close to him and, and, um, but he's he's handling it well. Like he's really mm-hmm. he's really enjoying it all, and and um, I think he's enjoying the newfound kind of fame. And and he's signed with a, an agency, I think. And he's so. But again, we got lucky because he could have responded differently. Well, I'm curious what that meant for you because you know some actors like to put themselves in their characters, and others like to hide behind the characters. And here you're doing a bit of both. You know, the ego on James Marsden on jury duty is this heightened version of you as a celebrity. You want to be known. You want them to know that, like, you're about to star in this movie. You want the attention. I'm curious, like, what your approach was in sort of playing yourself in character form and what choices you wanted to make for that. It was really appealing from a comedic perspective to me to really send up and lampoon your the cliche entitled Hollywood celebrity. Have you ever served on a jury before? Uh, yes, ma'am. Was that here in Los Angeles? No. Where was it? Cannes. In France? Yeah, it was the film festival. I mean a civil or a criminal jury. Oh, no, no. Sorry, no. Okay. I'm just sort of a dolt, a Hollywood dolt who just doesn't understand the real world stuff, right? Wait, right. 
like I've never really had to stand in line at the DMV. <laughs> what is this jury duty thing? There was something really liberating about being in a kind of like a pressure cooker. It was like a chamber piece. We were like all in a in a room for five hours with cameras nonstop going, right? There was no cut. Okay, let's do this again. It's just, it was reality. So it was just a fun, it was a fun thing to do to kind of make fun of that classic Hollywood celebrity who's who's just proclaiming that he's so normal. He's just such a, just a normal guy. <laughs> one of guy. you, yeah. And, and is totally not, right? I'm sort of curious, like how with this height, this idea of celebrity and what it can do to a person, like how would you describe your relationship to fame now? Because I mean, when you're starting out in like your teens or twenties and you're getting recognized, I imagine it's hard not to sort of get swept up in this idealized notion of making it in Hollywood. So has there been a moment where you've had to humble yourself like early on in your career of like, okay, chill out, dude. I mean, I feel like... (sighs) Not really, because I feel like that's the big trap, Mm -hmm. right? Like as soon as you fall into that trap, you believe your own greatness or hype or that you should have won this award or you should. I I just I I almost to a fault err on the other side of it of like, you're just still so damn lucky to be doing this. You should you've been doing this for 30 years. I grew up in Oklahoma. You know, my job before and being paid as an actor was mowing lawns for 20 bucks a lawn. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was like you're not the only pebble on the beach. I don't know. I feel like that's become as a, a big of an asset as being talented mm. uh, in this business. I, I never thought that that was going to be something that I I got work because of, but I start mm. to feel that now. Like there's a hundred people that can be cast in this movie that will be just as good as you, if not better, but the producers are going to choose the person that has a good reputation and is easy to work with. And, mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, we're, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the role of the writers, we're in the midst of a writer's strike. And and I want to discuss the role they play, you know, as we see in the end, while you do have to be quick on your feet and pivot, depending on how Ronald responds to things, so much is planned or at least outlined as much as possible. So what struck you about the sort of work and preparation the writers put into this? Well, I mean, talk about unsung heroes. You know, a lot of people come, we're doing press about the show and say it's full improv, which is, which is not entirely true. Um, The writers crafted seven scripts uh, of some of the funniest shit I've ever read. Like once I read the scripts at the beginning, before I even signed on, I was howling with laughter about what was happening in, 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 (laughs) in these scripts. And like, and again, it's all screen direction. It's all circumstantial. So there's a foundation that the writers created over the course of seven episodes that gave me a sort of a jumping off point to go and, and play. It was like a playground for me, right? Um, and nothing was really scripted. There were a couple of moments that were like, you know, kind of specifically, he says this, but um, but mostly it was like, Marsden sneaks off to the bathroom and unloads a giant turd in his bathroom. And like, you know, it's... <laughs> So obviously I'm not doing that on the fly <laughs> and it was, it was collaborative, you know, like we would meet before the day started and we'd meet again after Ronald went home, talk about what worked, talk about ideas for tomorrow. I would go home mm. with, uh, you know, a thousand ideas 
um, simmering in my head about what we're doing the next day. And I would jot them down on a, on a notepad, like, okay, with this, if he does this, what would be funny for me to say as, you know, jackass James Marsden, uh-huh. if, he, if he goes over here, what, what, what am I armed with that? What could I say? That's just, you know, that again, just pushes the whole petulant Hollywood brat thing even mm-hmm. more. <laughs> and Is that there last, one you're particularly proud of that you did? Lines that I created. Yeah. Uh, or I, moments. Really, I mean, the, the most terrible ones are kind of my favorites. Let's all feel sorry for the guy from the notebook who's not even the guy from the notebook is one of my favorites. And it was just such a fun, liberating. I would imagine it's what Larry David feels playing and <laughs> in, in Kirby enthusiasm, uh-huh. right? Like, I kind of, why am I enjoying this so much? <laughs> like the, uh, you're given permission to be as wrong as you uh-huh. want to be. But then kind of subtly cover it back up with some charm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You see, I would see, I would do something really unsavory and I would see Ronald kind of move away from me because <laughs> he didn't want to be associated with the Hollywood dick. But then once he got, if he got too far away from me, then I would reel him back in with just, hey, be, mm. nice, be, be nice James Marsden for a bit. So that he's so he's thoroughly confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you weren't trained in improv, but you've done a lot of comedy and have worked opposite improv masters like Will Ferrell and Jim Carrey. So what project from your past work do you think helped prepare you the most in taking this on? I think the two that come to mind are Anchorman 2 with with Will and Steve and Paul and, and McKay and those guys. And because I got to witness how they can, how they, how brilliantly they did their improv as a team. Mm. And it was not a a fight for the microphone. It wasn't a, a fight for the spotlight or the best joke. It was like watching them generously set each other up for jokes was pretty, mm-hmm. uh, it was like a real learning experience for me. And then two, Liz Feldman on uh, Dead to Me. I mean, really tight, beautifully written scripts. But once we would get, everything as written Liz would give us a little bit of you know latitude to mess around and and mm. kind of see what else we think would be funny just kind of you know going rogue more with James Marsden after the break Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with James Marsden. The world of of sketch comedy and improv is an area you had interest in early on in your sort of pursuit of a career in entertainment. I like you discovered Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy at an early age and I didn't know until recently that you auditioned for Saturday Night Live before? Like, tell me what you remember about that experience, because I think you were really young, but I don't know. Fill me I in. was. I was I was a like a freshman or junior in high school. And I, it feels like now looking back, it feels like, was that a dream <laughs> or or did that really happen? Because I think we got word in our drama class in high school that they were holding auditions downtown Oklahoma City to just find you know it was like a nationwide search for the next um cast yeah yeah Uh comedy comedy cast of snl (laughs) 
And I went with my friend Brian Long, who I used to do a, a lot of comedy bits with in, in high school together. And we went and we just kind of sat there and did impressions. And I guess you could call it an audition. When I would imagine coming from Oklahoma, Hollywood probably seems incredibly out of reach. And I know you first appeared on TV, what, like at 16 after being recruited by a local news station and you were like a student anchor. And I have to tell you, James, I watched the video of you in action and I just kept wondering, like, what could have been because you you did pursue a degree in broadcast journalism before dropping out to move to Hollywood. (laughs) So what happened? Like, was there a moment that stands out as a turning point of like, maybe I'm not going to be this news anchor after all. I need to go to Hollywood. to be completely honest with you, that was never in the cards for me. That was never, I was, that was never a, an aim. It was never a goal for me to go be a news anchor. It wasn't something I wanted to do. It was just like a sort of a safety valve. It's mm. Like if I, if I don't move to Hollywood or if I don't make it as an actor, I could maybe come back and get a degree in that and I could be a, we got a cold front coming in here from the uh, we get the northwestern was... winds meeting the Gulf warm air, creating some turbulence. You know, I, I could do that. <laughs> I was thinking more you could have been like an Anderson Cooper, but that works too. <laughs> well, I, I like to set the bar really low first. I don't... <laughs> well, so when you when you do make the move out here, was it a shock to the system coming from Oklahoma? It was a shock in the best way. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people I I tell my story to they say well that must have been scary for you to leave you know and I was like really no it was quite <laughs> the opposite I couldn't get here fast enough I was like and that's not a slam on Oklahoma at uh-huh. all I, I love where I grew up and I, my family and friends and but I was hungry and curious about this world and what my play, what my potential place could be in in hollywood working as an actor and if is that something that i can even achieve and more importantly than that is that something that i could sustain um but when i hit the ground running here i was like i mean i shot out of a cannon i was like i was so eager and so excited to be in la and i had this youthful kind of cockiness about me to be honest and it worked and and casting directors were kind of like who is this kid? Okay. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm James Marsden. I'm James Marsden. And at the time, I think I was Jimmy Marsden. <laughs> and I changed that later because that was sounded too teeny boppy. Where did you set up? No like, what. did you, did you have, where did you end up living when you first came out here? Did you have roommates? Tell me what rent was like back then, James. <laughs> oh yeah. I lived in which is a prerequisite to anybody moving to Hollywood, the Oakwood Apartments mm-hmm. on Barham Boulevard, uh, which is a, for the people who don't know what this is, it's a massive, massive like uh, apartment complex that all do one, like month to month. So you can rent month yeah. to month and um, they have a whole like community center. And, uh, and uh, I've got this little studio apartment there with a Murphy bed that folds out. And I think it was like $550. <laughs> Well, what even stands out about some of those early years? Because I would imagine like Hollywood in the 90s seems like such a specific kind of experience. Like what, how do you look back on that era of your life? I mean, that that seemed like the era of guest spots. It was like, here I am on Blossom. (laughs) Party of five. Party of five. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Saved by the bell. You know, all of those. Um, and it was, it was, it, I look at the 90s as a time of 
there was a little bit of snobbery about are you in the TV world or are mm-hmm. you in the in the film world? And I never I, I I never subscribed to that. I I was always like, well, it's an interesting role or it's not, mm-hmm. and and it's really well written material or it's not. In the '90s, it was like if you're a, if you're in movies, that's usually a longer career. It's a more respected career. Um, but I used some really great television roles at the time to like as as um, stepping stones to getting you know some really more interesting film work. Was there ever like a fork in the road where you imagine your like career could have gone down a different route? Yeah, very early on. In fact, about three months into moving to LA, I was offered to screen test for Days of Our Lives. Um, oh, wow. I, I remember this casting director going, I, after I read for her, she goes, want to be on a soap opera? Wow. And I said, sure. And I didn't know anything about how it all worked. I was just thinking, I'm going to be paid as an actor. Yeah. To be, you know? And um, again, I'd been there for two, two or three months into LA. And my manager at the time was like, no. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? He's like, because it's a three or four year contract. You're stuck there. It's hard to get out of it. You know, like there was reasons that I don't know yeah, that yeah. I fully agreed with at the time why he was saying pass on it. Oftentimes, I think, boy, if no, I'd have taken, better taken that role. And the gentleman who, the actor who took that role has been on it for decades or something. Wow. So I was like, well, that could... I guess that could have been me. Well, to that point, like a story that I love is that like after you expressed hesitation when Steven Soderbergh offered you a part in Magic Mike, Channing Tatum sent you an email to say he loved you in Enchanted. And is that like the ultimate compliment to know that a performance like that doesn't cloud how people can see you for another how performance like in Enchanted can, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, in fact, it could just be, it can only help. I mean, yeah. My 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 reservations with Magic Mike were, the role was never really that big, mm-hmm. and not that it needed to be, but this movie specifically, you know, you're dancing around in a in a G string through the whole thing, mm-hmm. and all I could think was, well, if they decide that the movie's too long. Mm-hmm. Who, whose part is going to get cut first? And I was like, probably this guy. Uh, probably the guy who doesn't have much to say. And then I'm thinking, well, then I would just be an extra, a background player who's running around in a G-string. Right. And I know that's a very defeatist way of looking at it because it is like Channing and Steven Soderbergh. I don't know. I was really nervous about just being ended up, ending up on the editing room floor. So if I were to go back, I probably would have done it knowing that because Channing was like, no, no, it's not just what's in the script. We're going to get in there and we're going to play with it. We're going to improv. We're going to make stuff up on the day. And I'm like, yeah, but I also come from the school of thought, which is like, see it in the see it on the page first. Uh-huh. You know? Like you don't you don't trust the promises of that. But I was wrong. Boy, it turned into be a massive success. Well, you touched on this earlier, like the the sort of viewer frame of mind when it came to TV and film back in the 90s. Like what I find so interesting about your journey as an actor is the way you have moved between both worlds with such ease. Like you're you could be in a superhero franchise like X-Men or like a love interest in like The Notebook or 27 Dresses. And then, you know, you're on 30 Rock or Mrs. America. Did you ever feel pressure like by your agents or managers or like your peers to commit fully to one path? Not really. Um, 
I mean, the industry on its own wants to put you in a bit of a box. And that's not me complaining. It's, mm-hmm. it's really not because nobody wants to hear an actor complain about how hard it is to be an actor in Hollywood. <laughs> right. But yeah, I think they want to classify you. Like, okay, he's the guy with the blue eyes and cheekbones, and we're going to only have him do this. Right. And I resisted that. You know, X-Men was a great, big, huge project for me because it put me on the map globally. And and, um, really grateful to have been part of those movies uh, and fulfill a childhood fantasy and be, you know, in a gigantic movie for the time. Yeah. But I also know that that just scratched the surfaces of my talents. Like I didn't really Mm -hmm. get to do much in those movies. And again, Mm -hmm. that's not me. I'm not complaining about that at all. It's just ironic that that's the thing that you're most known for at the time. It wasn't a representation, a true representation of what my abilities were. Mm -hmm. So once I, once I got that movie and it, and it gave me notoriety and people knew who I was and other opportunities opened up, I made a conscious decision to seek out roles in different types of genres, musicals, you know, enchanted hairspray, those kinds of things to show you in a different light or even comedies. You know, I think my strengths are jumping around and moving from a, a drama genre to a comedy genre, to a musical genre, to a superhero genre, to a, you know, a romantic thing. You know, it's, that's, that's where I feel I'd I'd be better as if I if I treat myself as more of a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> with, yeah, I would I would imagine it like moving between both mediums like has maybe helped you navigate the shifts happening in Hollywood mm-hmm. now. Yeah, 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 for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you talk about adaptability. You know, um, you you want to feel like you can exist in any genre or any any world. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap things up, James, I can you take a guess which is my favorite James Marsden role? Like, let's see how obvious I am. Your favorite James Marsden movie is going to be 27 Dresses or The Notebook. (laughs) 27 Dresses. Ah, 27 Dresses. I should have stopped right there. Perfect movie. (laughs) Don't want a sequel. If you'll ever do it, please indulge me. Well, that sounds like it would be a lot of fun. 27 kids. We can get Ronald in there somehow. Yeah, I don't Ronald know. in there. Yeah. He's a new reporter at the uh, the wedding section of the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, James, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Same. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was nice to chat with you. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It is produced by Mara Laser and Taya Francesca Price. Edited by Mitra Caboli. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mario Diaz. Our executive producer is Heba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Lauren Rabb, Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Vitamontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. In our episode next week, I speak with Christina Ricci. See you then.